My name is Jared Rizzi. This is At the Table, which is a new podcast that David and I have been putting together for the last couple of months with Alana Morris, who's our assistant producer. And the, the whole concept of At the Table, if you haven't heard me talk about it already, and for the people who are listening who aren't able to join us here at Local 16, where we are this week and where we will be in future weeks, this is a concept of a slightly different political conversation, and that already sounds like total BS. So let me put it in a different way. I don't want there to be another straight white dude political podcast. I don't think the world needs that. I also don't think the world needs people telling you what to feel about politics, and I really don't think that we need people to try to make you angrier all the damn time. That's what a lot of the content that's out there already is doing, and I think it's bad. I think it's worse for the country. I think it's worse for the people who consume it, pouring it into your ears every day. I think it's a bad thing to do for your emotional health and diet. Uh, but a lot of us do it anyway. Um, so what I wanted to do was try to do something different. And the concept of this, it's called At the Table for a couple reasons, and I won't get into all of them because I don't want to read Langston Hughes tonight. I've done that on the podcast already, but that is one of the reasons. The two reasons are, one, I come from, I was a White House reporter, as David mentioned, for seven years, but before that, I come from a restaurant family. That's the, the gingham tablecloth you're seeing in front of you right now. That's also me talking with my hands constantly, which is very bad for, for radio because it's not usually something that people can pick up on, but it does mean that I sometimes hit the microphones but it's also this concept of hospitality that I've tried to bring into my family. I've tried to incorporate into my life on a daily basis. Hospitality is, is such a big, big virtue. And I think that whether we're talking about immigration or whether we're talking about language that's okay to be used in politics, whether we're talking about who's saying things that are offensive or who's telling people to go back to where you came from, it's a good reminder that hospitality is actually a virtue that we could use a little bit more of in our politics. And I'm not going to try to take it down from the, the laughter that we were experiencing just a few moments to make it too seriously, but I do feel very strongly about this, which is that we are better when we are welcoming to each other. We are best when we try to make spaces for each other. And if I'm talking about why I'm not going to be just another straight white dude podcast, the other part of it is acknowledging vulnerabilities. It's admitting that you don't know everything. It's seeking out other points of view. And if you're going to put me at the head of this table, I want to make sure that it's as full as possible. Because the two things you can do when you have abundance, and I've said this several times on the podcast, and it's certainly not my phrase, but it's something I truly believe in. If you have that, that abundance, you can either make a taller fence or you can make a longer table. And we are continually making a longer table. And hopefully that's something that people can get behind in this moment in politics. Because I believe very strongly that this moment needs something different. And it's not going to be defeated with anger. Anger is it's, it's taking poison but expecting the other person to die. It is something that... Trump is very good at anger, as an example. He's great at making people feel vulnerable, making them feel weak, making them uh, exacerbating their, their grievance. That's, that's so tempting to fall behind. And I think right now in our political moment, there are two types of people who aren't feeling that anger. Either they're excited about all the things he's talking about, which I can't even countenance that excitement, but... Sure, that's a lot of people right now, a decent chunk of the population. Or they have been so burnt out by that anger because anger does consume you 
they're so burnt out by that anger that they're no longer able to participate in everyday life, let alone political life, let alone being an active citizen. This is advanced citizenship. And if we are letting people be burnt out by that anger, we are failing. And so one of the things that I try to do with this conversation is lift people up, is to bring them closer, to tell them that they are loved, to tell them that and this isn't, by the way, I don't want to go too far into Marianne Williamson territory because, because please vaccinate your children. Uh, but I will say that there's a moment where we have to fight that impulse to just feel angry, which, by the way, that anger is, I mean, David Ross saying, you know, being sad or angry as he sometimes is, that that's real. We need to feel that. That's the appropriate response when people are being locked up in cages. That is the appropriate, but anger is the appropriate response. But we have to get past it. We have to move beyond it. And we have to get excited about the next step. I'm very excited about the next step here tonight because what I'm going to be able to do is the for the very first time at, here at Local 16, invite some people, some very smart people to come join me and have a political conversation. I want to do more of this. But let me just pull back and say what this is supposed to approximate in some way. For the last few years, my wife and I have been doing this amazing family-style dinner at our home. And we talk about everything. We talk about politics. We talk about life. We talk about what makes us happy. We talk about what brings us together. Inviting people into our home has been our way of making the table longer. And it's something that I would recommend to everyone who's able to hear this because it'll, it'll, it has saved my life in a very real way, but it will also improve yours, I promise you. And whether that's welcoming people who you don't think necessarily belong here because you're an ass, or if you're just trying to be a little bit friendlier in your everyday life, I think that can go a long damn way. Uh, I am so gratified, by the way, that we are able to do this in Local 16, who has extended all of the tables here uh, on, uh, in this part of the restaurant for this event and will continue to do so in the near future. That is a real blessing, and we are very happy to have that as well. But for me... That's why I hope this conversation is different. I hope you find it to be so. And if you don't, I hope you tell me. Uh, on Twitter, it's at Jared Rizzi, but uh, if you see me around the, the street, just slap me upside the head. I know David will soon. Uh, and with that, uh, I'm going to give it back to David Ross for a minute to introduce our panel. I'm Jared Rizzi. This is At the Table, a podcast, a new podcast that we've been putting together for the last few months and will continue to do. And this is the first I do this every week when we do the, the, the Friday Night Meatballs. I say how many of these we've done. This is the first one we've done here. So thank you to the extended family that we have around the room right now. It is very special to me that you are all here. So thank you very much. Give yourselves a round of applause and extend that as well to David Ross. Uh, <laughs> if you dare. The issue, with, the issue being where I'm seated, I actually do not have my notes. So you're going to have to introduce this. That's fine. Yeah. That's fine. Former, I, former executive producer, David Ross. <laughs> Let me talk about a new opening we have here at, at the table. Uh, one of the things that uh, David has done is prove tonight that um, really we don't need him. And uh, if anyone would like the zero dollars that David's making off of this project... Uh, I would recommend you apply for a job with At The Table Productions. Uh, Alana's got seniority, so she will now be uh, moving up. 
I'm Jared Rizzi. This is At the Table. We are here at Local 16 in Washington, D.C., and this is our first live production. that we've, we, We're going to be doing these on a weekly basis, actually, and it's going to be quite a bit of fun. I hope that if you're in the D.C. area, you can come down to Local 16, support this amazing restaurant and bar, and also join us for these podcasts. But I want to introduce people who are very much here, not only here with me today, but also going to be uh, speaking to you in a moment because we have some excellent panelists who are joining us. Seated to my left, Lucy Solomon, who is the Associate Political Director at Indivisible. Lucy, thank you so much for taking some time and coming down to Local 16 today. Thanks so much for having me. And, oh yeah, thank you, yeah. We can do as much of that as we like. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a show, folks. Uh, and then we've also got, and also to my left, we've got Mike Reed, who is the Chief of Staff for Congressman Eric Swalwell. Also, you were uh, up till recently an advisor to the uh, presidential campaign of the Congressman, correct? Yep, yeah. So, sure. Mike, thanks for coming down as well. Sure, thanks. Happy to be here. Uh, let me start with something that I think for both of you, ho- hopefully this won't be too hard of, a, of an opener, but I, I really do feel like this is, you've heard me describe what this show is all about. You've heard me describe why I think it's an important time, a kind of different conversation. Uh, and I want to start with something for national politics. I think you'll be very uh, familiar with this because this week the president has decided to make an attack that is both racist and sexist, um, talking about women who are uh, in the House of Representatives who are uh, progressives, who are women of color, and he has decided to say, this was a couple days ago now, over the weekend, in tweets, that uh, he wanted them to essentially to go back to where they came from. Before we get to our professional capacities, I'd like to ask for a personal reaction, how you responded to this, because there have been so many moments where this administration has shocked us and appalled us, but I imagine... For me, this actually broke through and managed to make me feel something again. I was like, wow, this is even worse than I was expecting it to be, um, which, is, which takes some doing these days. So let me ask, I'll, I'll say Lucy first, if you could just, I, I know that at some point you were coming back, I think, on Sunday from Netroots. So at some point you, in your Netroots you know, hangover or whatever you were doing, you were <laughs> responding to this. What was, the, what, what, what was the, the moment? Did you, like I, I guess find it to be particularly uh, upsetting or was it just the normal amount? Um, but I mean, it's a tough, yeah, that's a tough question. I would say um, what I found to be most upsetting was, um, I, I'm not surprised by the president's racism at this point, right? Like, it's who he is. It's who he's been from the get-go. Um, so, yeah, nothing uh, nothing racist that he says can really surprise me at this point. Um, the part that was most disappointing, um, I think, or challenging is the fact that um, I think that the, these four members, um, Representative Presley, Representative Ocasio-Cortez, Representative Tlaib, and Representative uh, Omar, are were put in a tough position by our own party, um, by some members of our party, by taking a really courageous stance um, on the crisis that Trump has created at the border. You know, they were some of the folks who were out in front on that from the get-go, um, and they've been trying to, to turn the attention back uh, to family separation, to what the president is doing to immigrants who are coming into this country. Um, and our own party hasn't always had their back. Um, and Representative Swalwell totally did yesterday, which was incredible to see. Um, but I, I think um, I don't have high expectations for the president. I do for Democrats. Uh, so for me, that was the part that was most difficult about this particular situation. 
Mike, at some point I want to ask you about where you were for Congressman Swalwell's uh, statement on the House floor yesterday because, as Lucy just mentioned, I thought that was a... You know, I, I love that I get to say this now. Um, you know, for, for seven years I was a reporter, and I couldn't say that made me really proud, but it did uh, to see that. And it was a, a good moment that I thought uh, in solidarity. But let me ask you the same question, which was, uh, what was the reaction to this? Because I'm guessing uh, you probably weren't surprised either, but this is, this is a moment that really pr broke through for me. Did it for you? Sure. Um, I agree with Lucy that there's very little that can surprise me about the depths of racism that this president can display. I would venture to say that I would be surprised if he expressed a level of compassion or contrition or uh, regret or sorrow or anything human in his um, dealing with other people outside of his own self and his self-interest, right? That would be what would be surprising for me. Um, for, so for me, it's, it's somewhere between par for the course and exhaustion, right? I'm, I'm, I'm exhausted at this president's behavior, at his rhetoric. Um, I'm exasperated at just his whole shtick, and I'm ready for it to be over. Let me ask you, in a, in a, again, in a personal capacity, because I know that both of you have jobs that take a lot out of you. I cannot... I remember being on the White House beat and being exhausted all the time. I know that for staff, chief of staff of a member of Congress, especially one that happens to be uh, re up till recently running for president, that's, that's a big job. I also know that Indivisible on the ground and here in Washington has been running you ragged, Lucy. So I know that these are tough jobs. And it's tough to feel these things anytime. But when you talk about that exhaustion, I don't... I'm not saying everybody should feel bad for us here in Washington because I'm not going to ask for sympathy or, or whatever because I know that people are dealing with their own lives and their own problems and their own exhaustion. But dealing with this from an emotional capacity, from that bandwidth every day, Mike, let me start with you on this one because you're go you, you, it's the weekend. It's not like you get weekends off, but it's the weekend. You're getting these things, and you must see this and think, what the hell? I, I can't even imagine... Because you know now that you've got to respond to it, right? As a, as a, as a human being, that's got to be exhausting on a whole different level. Yeah, I mean, we expect that in these moments, especially based on how this president operates, we see, um, you know, his, his, his life cycle of uh, just depravity, <laughs> right? It's, you know, he's tweeting when he's watching television and fo watching Fox News, you know, when he's, you know, at home and bored and alone. Things like that. And so the, the, the idea of the president being up at 3 or 4 in the morning tweeting ridiculousness or um, on the weekend tweeting ridiculousness, that's the kind of just what we I expect. Um, we used to joke, by the way, on the White House beat that no one interesting got fired for, before like 10 p.m. Mm -hmm. Like that was for a long time that was legitimately true. And so I, I, I feel for you. Yeah. Um, and, and the exhaustion, which I mentioned earlier, is not it's not a, like a physical physical exhaustion with like the work. It's more just a, 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 of a personal, emotional exhaustion that the person who holds the highest, most distinguished office in at least our land and probably in world history um, is so immature and selfish and unable to operate in a way in which 
just demonstrates a level of um, uh, concern for anyone outside of himself. So that's the exhaustion which I described. Yeah, yeah. But ultimately, we, we do have a job to do. Um, I'm very fortunate to work for um, a member of Congress who is um, very outspoken, but also clear-minded about his views on a whole host of things, um, not the least of which is um, the, the danger that this president has uh, ex you know, demonstrated to you know, the American people. Um, and so, it, you know, while the president is up on Twitter and whatever his other forms of messaging is, um, you know, Congressman Swalwell, he, he's, you know, he's millennial and he, he's also on Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat and various, you know, a new well, dad. he is a new dad. He is, so yeah, he's up all night. You know, <laughs> he talks about changing diapers and, you know, like feeding his kids yeah, and that's right. things like that. So he can be up at any given time. Um, and so when he sees things like that, he, you know, he has a 24 hour, seven day a week job. Yeah. Um, and, and, and he's accessible on social media. So constituents and fans and haters, and I won't say haters, but, you know, people who, who disagree with him, um, you know, they, they're, they're always on too. Lucy, I know that um, when we talk about the, the way in which this weighs heavily on everybody, I mentioned that these are four women of color because I know that, you know, we're, we're having this conversation. I want to make sure we take all those aspects in. But I think about your capacity in Indivisible. And one thing that I know that you do as an organization is try to get people excited on the ground level about different issues. And that has to be so much harder, especially when we're talking about that emotional exhaustion that Mike was just describing. And I know that it's harder for people who are in any of the president's frequent targets. And people of color, women, are definitely high on his list of, of frequent targets. But how do, you, how do you move past that initial, because I, I was talking a few minutes ago about that anger. How do you push past that? How do you get through the, I, I know that it's just our jobs, but I also think that it's something that we should uh, talk about because it's not just about ourselves, but also about these issues. How do we move past that moment and actually put on our shoes and go to work? Because that, that is a difficulty. And I don't, I don't want to admit, diminish it just because it's easier for some people than it is for others. No, it, it absolutely is. Um, I think we're sort of in an uh, interesting position when it comes to that um, because a lot of folks in the indivisible movement were activated towards politics after 2016. Um, and that's a luxury that a lot of people didn't have, right? Like, I am incredibly impressed and grateful for the work that indivisible activists do and other grassroots activists do around the country every day. And I'm also very cognizant of the fact that um, a lot of us are relatively new to this fight, right? And uh, there are people who've been in it for a long time and, and haven't had the luxury of getting exhausted. Um, and when I, even when I think about our own movement, um, a lot of the, there are amazing groups across the country, but a lot of the groups that I've been most impressed by are groups in deep red parts of the country, in deep southern turf, um, who are organizing knowing they're not organizing for the short term, knowing that it's not just going to be a quick win, um, and that they're actually building power and changing their communities, and following in the footsteps, especially of activists of color who've been doing this work uh, for generations. So um, I absolutely get exhausted. On Sunday, after I got back from Netroots, I just like lay on my couch and didn't move all day. Um, 
But I also know it's like it's not really a luxury we can afford, right? Like other folks have been in this fight for a long time. We're finally showing up, some of us, and like we owe it to each other to do the work. So you mentioned showing up and doing the work, and and that for I don't want people who are just arriving at this moment now to feel like they're too late. I don't want people to think, oh, I'm at, because I believe really strongly that the benefit of the Trump moment of our political history is that it is clarifying. We now know where everyone stands. There is no ambiguity when it comes to Trump and politics. If Republicans are fine with everything that he's done up till now, they are going to be fine with everything he does beyond now. If, if Democrats are upset but not activated... Even in places like you're talking about, those people are activated despite, you say, not here for the short win. That is, I think, a down payment on something really important, but it is a clarifying moment. They've said, okay, I'm in the minority in my community politically, but it's worth me. That's a clarifying moment. And I also think, in terms of clarity, that that anger for people who are burnt out, it's our job to try to snap them out of it and say, okay, here you are. How are we going to do this better? How are we going to do this differently? Let me, let me ask a different question, which is um, we, we've seen the, the president has been blistering over some of the investigations and I imagine potential repercussions from the House. And because we're talking about ways in which we all get exhausted, I want to talk about something that has been – Democrats have been reluctant to line up behind. We saw um, Congressman Al Green today, for example – put up a privileged resolution in the House, got fewer than 100 Democrats to support it. But this was a, resolution, a, pri- a privileged resolution of impeachment, uh, saying that the president's essentially too bigoted to do the job, which is not the first time that that, uh, that has been alleged, but certainly uh, bringing up something interesting. There have been votes on this in the past. In 2017, it got uh, 50 or 60 and a few more in 2018. We've seen these in the past. It's moving where more Democrats are voting for it, but it's still not gaining uh, momentum in a way that's, that's getting critical mass. So when we talk about this and we talk about not here for the short win, this is a question that a lot of Democrats are facing, and I want to ask the both of you. So I'll start with Lucy because I know that this is something that Indivisible has talked a little bit about. For, for you as someone who gets – people excited. Is impeachment a thing that we should be doing because it's the right thing to do? Is it something that we should be doing because it's the right thing to do politically? Or is it something that we should leave on the table at this point because it's too politically or, or logistically risky? Yeah, so I grimaced when uh, Jared asked me the question because uh, like, I don't know what the political impacts of well, impeachment no does, yeah. would be, right? Um, and so, you know, coming from a political lens, it's like, ooh, I don't know, is that like is that a winning issue for us? But the thing is like you can't come at it from that, right? Like there are values that are core to what our country is supposed to be, and this president doesn't uphold those values. Um and so it it and not just the values, but like he's corrupt, he's racist, he was certainly welcoming of foreign interference in our elections. Like, there are so many lines that we would have said were red lines uh, that he just, like, breezed right across. So it's like, yeah, from a political lens, maybe it... I, I don't know what the impact will be, but from... Uh, as someone who cares about the future of this country and, and believes in what we're supposed to 
stand by and uphold. Uh, I think folks have to open an impeachment inquiry. And I know um, Rep Swalwell has been out in front on this issue. So I'm very grateful to those folks in Congress who are um, who are leading with their, their values um, and not letting political fear like keep them from taking action. This is Lucy Solomon, who's with Indivisible. Uh, she was referencing uh, Chief of Staff for Eric Swalwell, uh, Mike Reed, who's also joining us. This is At the Table, and I'm Jared Rizzi. Mike, let's put the question to you, because I think it's important. Uh, this is not something that Congressman Swalwell has uh, approached, but let me ask you, just as a, as a Democrat talking shop, is this something that's worth... Uh, that's worth countenancing at this point uh, because it's either the right thing to do or because it's politically motivating. Sure. I, well, I agree with Lucy again. Um, and it's not hard because clearly she's very talented. Um, <laughs> Thank you. But um, to, to, to Lucy's point, I, I, it is hard for me to imagine why anyone can justify taking in action such as impeachment, such an extraordinary measure for any reason other than it being the right thing to do. Um, it, it's, it is the most serious um, mechanism the Constitution affords when relates to um, no, rec no removing an, an officer, a constitutional officer, um, in this case the president, you know. So no, if it was if it was something in which we should carry out for political reasons, it would have been done more than it would have been pursued seriously more than I know, three times saying. in history, right? Um, it it can only be done because it's for for the nation, and and I think that when the founding um, the founders of our nation um, um, when they drafted the Constitution, when they um, conceived of a mechanism such as impeachment. They, I'm not a constitutional scholar nor historian, so just in my lay Wikipedia, Google, <laughs> Twitter, Instagram history, Noted. right? Noted. Yeah. Um, we will judge you accordingly. There, there was a there was a, a sense at that point in time that um, elect those who we elected to represent us would represent us in a um, dispassionate nonpartisan way in, when, at, the, at the areas which are of most importance, that they would uphold not only the, what is best for the nation, but they would also uphold what was best for their branch of government. You know, in this case, the legislature would um, find it to be important to defend the, the, the legislative branch versus overreach of the executive branch versus overreach of the courts okay, um, and vice versa. But this is an answer that's not satisfying fundamentally. I mean, I'm just imagining the person who's hearing this and saying, but we really want to do this. No, I understand. And I, I mean, that's not necessarily where I'm coming from, mm -hmm. but I'm imagining there are a lot of people for whom they're saying this has to happen. Well, and why isn't it happening? Well, the, the reason why it's not happening is because not enough members of Congress have agreed for it to happen. Right. Now, uh, the member of Congress I work for has asked, asked to open an impeachment inquiry because he believes the threshold has been met, because he believes it's the right thing to do, and and that he would pursue this action um, if the if the president in office who was committing such acts or the such suspicion was around, even if they were in his party, right, he would pursue it. For him, it's not a partisan matter. 
but what I what I do think is that um, what many, if not all, of Republicans, at least those in Congress, have, um, other than former Republican Justin Mosh, have they have refused to publicly consider this for partisan reasons, right? Um, and seriously consider it, and, and and we hear stories about um, and 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 have and have discussions with people who say that they wish they could be in a position to um, call for impeachment or be more serious about it, or they think that impeachment is not um, inappropriate, uh, but for their own partisanship and their own political reasons right. related to their own person, their own um, stake here in Washington, they're unable to do so. And I and for and for those reasons. I, I I don't I understand why they draw that conclusion. I disagree with it very very strongly. Um, but it is it's we shouldn't look at it in a vacuum like um, people, at least on the, on the Republican side in particular, wouldn't pay a political price for being some of the first ones to call for the impeachment. But as far as I'm concerned, that's not that is the least of our concerns when it comes to why you should call for impeachment or not. It's funny to me because I see the vote that was tallied recently about, you know, condemning the, the president's uh, language as racist. And even then, what what I think to most of the people here in this room uh, would agree is, uh, you know, obviously racist. Uh, only four members of the, of the House that are Republican and one independent, Justin Amash, uh, said that uh, that even they could vote for the uh, voted in favor of acknowledging this. Of course, every Democrat, but it's 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 wild to me that that's where we are in terms of partisanship. Because I mean, does anyone here? I mean, we're here at local sixteen, so let me just ask uh, for a little bit of of audience rowdiness. Which is, I mean, are the president's tweets over the weekend? Let's see. Uh, let's go with let's go with not racist first. Anybody uh, applauding for not racist? <laughs> we had one person almost almost applaud incorrectly. Let's go with are there were the were they over the weekend were they racist? I think that's a, a separate Yeah. Tepid but but present. Okay, I like that. Yeah. So if you're right. to applaud for racism. We're, we're applauding to condemn racism. <laughs> I understand I, you're you're right. You're right. I should have done it the opposite direction. It's like when you hit the like button on Instagram. <laughs> But for a sad post, <laughs> like there's only there's no other way to express yeah. your yeah. I agree, but <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's good that your dog is, <laughs> you know, or whatever. Or not not your dog. Your dog is wonderful. I'm sure he's. I'm sure he's fine. Um, let. It's just so frustrating to me because the question that I posed, I know that both of you have countenanced in a personal and professional way, which is that people want to see this happen they want to understand it to happen and they they potentially it's a motivating factor and it feels on the one hand maybe wrong to ignore something that would get people excited and motivated but i think as mike was just saying maybe reasonable although mike said one other thing that i want to reference which is uh, it's only happened three times in history and and here's uh here's a sense that we're taking it seriously what an amazing way that our politics could get worse in the future <laughs> I hadn't realized that there was a bottom below this, and now I know that it is. it, it does exist, is that one day we can put... <laughs> thank you. People clapping for the bottom now. <laughs> we, will, we will soon dig below it, a sub-basement to which we <laughs> did not think was previously possible. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, we are here in Local 16. This is At the Table, and I'm Jared Rizzi. Joining me are Lucy Solomon, who's with Indivisible, 
and Mike Reed, who's with Congressman Swalwell's staff. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back, continue this panel discussion, and uh, we're also going to get some, some comments from people who are here for the crowd. And we hope that if you're in D.C., you can join us here uh, when we do this in the future. Again, this is At the Table. I'm Jared Rizzi. smarter than even normal we'll do the camera now yeah <laughs> it's all about the hair yeah the blowout looks good thank you it is all right all right folks we're gonna get we're gonna redo uh nobody's paying attention good where did david go is david alive okay he you fired him oh i did fire him yeah that's true okay <laughs> Welcome back to At the Table. I'm Jared Rizzi, and we are here at Local 16 in Washington, D.C., restaurant and bar on U Street. You and 16, if you can make it down here, we are going to be doing these on a regular basis. Next week, we're going to be here on Tuesday. And then after that, it's going to be the Democratic debates. And before I let these two members of the panel go, uh, I am going to ask them about what to expect about these next Democratic, uh, the DNC primary debates for president, because, of course, we're going to be talking about national politics. Who wouldn't want to have that conversation for a living? But we're going to talk about some other issues before we get to that. Um, let me reintroduce, though. I'm Jared Rizzi, the host for seven years. I was a White House correspondent. Um, trying to do a different type of political conversation with a little more heart and fire and wind. No, that's Captain Planet. Um, I'm doing uh, less awful is, I think, what I'm trying to do, and hopefully that's the case. Seated to my left is Lucy Solomon, who is the Associate Political Director at Indivisible, and also to my left we have Mike Reed, who's the Chief of Staff for Congressman Eric Smallwell. Thank you both for coming. And thank you both for sitting here for this uh, inaugural uh, podcast here at Local 16. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks. Woo! Happy to be here. And thanks, everybody, here in the crowd. We've got a nice, a nice group of people here uh, eating, enjoying some of the uh, delicious food and beverage here at Local 16. Um, let's start with something that's unpleasant to talk about, but, uh, well, that could be just about anything in, uh, national, on the national politics. But I want to emphasize this as a positive for a couple reasons. Um, Mike, I, I, I want to talk to you as, as you and not necessarily, you know, as a surrogate for your boss, but I do feel like there are a couple things that I, I, could, I could be very uh, congratulatory for your boss. Uh, recently, just out of a presidential campaign, he made, as one of his signature issues, talking about gun safety and, and putting that front and center on the national stage. That is to be commended especially given how difficult that issue is and where other Democrats have been a little squishy on it. Um, I bring that up because it's still a very animating issue both on the left and on the right. I feel like for the first time in a long time, the left is, is getting more excited about this as an animating issue, a get-out-the-vote issue. Mike, let me start with you because it has been something that's been the centerpiece for Congressman Swalwell, but also I imagine if you've been working for him, you probably have a pretty strong opinion about and you work in, in uh, Congress, so I imagine you have a pretty strong opinion about this. Uh, politically, this is a tough issue, but for a lot of us, especially people who have been a human being and, and think about this, it's not too hard to imagine that there's a better way forward, and I know that your boss has recommended, for example, a gun buyback program. But how do we how do we crack this? Not just as a policy issue, and we can talk about those issues all day long, but as a political issue where it's so in, 
it, there, there's so much resistance to it. There, there's such a calcified resistance, especially on the right. So how do we break through? How do we get to the critical mass? Because apparently no amount of violence and death is going to do it. So how do we change our politics on it? Sure. Um, I think when you said calcified resistance, that was probably a very a very accurate and poetic way of, uh, um, of describing it. I'm sorry to be right. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, it... Um, my boss, when he was in running for president, made um, um, gun violence his, his, his centerpiece issue, and and not only was that the centerpiece issue for his campaign, due to just the, the the moral responsibility and the national responsibility we have as a nation to tackle these issues, but also to something which you alluded to, which is it's not simply it's not simply a lack of ideas on gun violence and, and, and gun safety um, that we need but it's also a lack of leadership that we've had in Washington and around the country on things like gun violence and for us to truly tackle these issues what we do need is, is are people in place who are willing to put um, what is right ahead of what is convenient what is politically expedient to, to put our children ahead of our guns um, in their votes. Um, we've seen time and time again in poll after poll that the American people, when asked, are overwhelmingly supportive of greater restrictions on access to guns, on the types of weapons which can be on our streets. Um, it's, it's across the boards, across the country. Um, but every time some even modest, mild um, compromise change is proposed no, the far, the furthest right elements of, and the furthest um, pro, so-called pro Second Amendment elements take hold, and people kind of steal up. Um, to use a, a probably a bad pun, but um, so I, I no. liked it. <laughs> so what we, so what we truly do, what we really do need is um, just people who are willing to take these votes, and and. Um, one thing that uh, my boss has been really proud of, and I'm really proud of for, for him, is um, working to elect members of Congress who have defied the NRA, um, who've stood up for um, sensible gun uh, uh, regulations and sensible gun safety measures around the country in places that we um, traditionally wouldn't have thought, right, in, in, you know, in, the, in the Midwest and the South, um, not, not simply... Uh, urban and progressive members, but you know people who uh, are from traditionally you know gun loving communities. So they say, you know, um, we we have an opportunity to better reflect what the American people want when it comes to gun violence, um, and that's why you need, and frankly, you know, fr frankly, need more Democrats in office. You need Democrats in the House, like which we passed, and we finally. In, in electing de Democrats to the House of Representatives to take the leadership in, in almost 10 years. Um, one of the, the most seminal things they've done this year is to pass um, universal background checks. Um, hopefully you can pass a Senate, um, a Senate majority. And doesn't, I mean, in, in an ideal world, doesn't have to be just Democrats, but what we've seen is only Democrats are the ones who are going to take the lead and only ones who are going to take this seriously. Right. So you need a pro-gun safety majority, which is probably going to be a Senate majority and a Senate and a Democratic 
majority leader in the Senate to bring this bill up and allow it to pass. And then you're going to need a, a Democratic or pro-people, pro-safety president. Um, no, not this current president. But, you know, <laughs> any other sensible president, probably a Democratic president who's willing to sign these things into law. So that is the next threshold that we need if we really want to take this issue seriously. Sorry for taking so No, time. please. I mean, that's what we're here for. Lucy, when it comes to electing Democrats, obviously that's the game on the ground for Indivisible. So where does this... Progressives. Progr- excuse me. How dare I? Uh, that is... Uh, thank you for the correction. When we're talking about this as an animating issue for progressives, how does it, how does it work for you? Because I know that, as Mike was just saying, there... They're trying to make sure that this is going everywhere. I know that's a big part. We were just talking a few minutes ago about making sure that Indivisible has places and, and, and people who are activated everywhere, even in very red places. So how does that, how does this issue animate or not animate, and how do you decide how to, how to push forward? Because this is not just a federal issue, but obviously a very local issue since gun laws vary state to state, municipality to municipality, and people may have their own particular line on this that's that's very different from what we're willing to talk about here in Washington. Yeah, I'd say, um, thinking about that, there are two main pieces for me. The first is, um, like Mike was saying, having Democrats, uh, progressives, who are uh, willing to take a really bold stance on gun violence prevention. Um, and the fact that they're winning not just in the bluest places, right? So, like, one of the first issues that any indivisible groups uh, got involved with in on the electoral side was uh, Georgia's sixth congressional race um, back when it was the special election. That's right. Um, we had local groups. A million years ago million in terms years of political. I was, uh, a million years younger, yes. Um, there were indivisible. <laughs> the face app that uh, Shelly was talking about. <laughs> there were indivisible groups who got um, involved, and that was the first election we got involved in at any level. Um, and that loss was hard. And then we saw Lucy McBath come and center gun violence prevention as part of her campaign. Um, and that was a really animating issue for voters. Um, and we saw her flip that seat by taking these bold stances. Um, so I'd say that's sort of half of the equation is having folks who are willing to, to really lead with their values. And I'd say the other half of the equation is um, how we fight back against the other side, right? And I don't think it's actually that gun violence prevention is unpopular. As Mike was saying, it's actually a, a winning issue but the issue is money and politics, right? Um, so I think the the moves we've seen over the last couple of years, um, and Citizens United has been like out in front on this, getting so many progressives to sign on um, to rejecting corporate PAC money, and now we're seeing that sort of as a, a given for folks running for president, right? So if we're taking money out of politics, you're taking away the power of the NRA. Um, so for folks who believe in gun violence prevention um, or who want to see any of these bold issues passed, um, getting money out of politics is going to be a key part of it. I want to move to immigration, not because I want to give short shrift to guns, but I also feel like there are so many big-ticket items that we need to talk about, and I want to make sure to talk about one that is not only timely in the sense that the, the president seems to beat that drum quite a bit, but also because I feel like this is an issue that um, is potentially very animating uh, for for political reasons, uh, especially for Democrats. And I so let's talk about immigration because the president likes to pretend like nobody wants to vote on this and that his um, executive actions are the only way to keep America safe. And uh, what we've seen on the southern U.S. border right now is, I think, at best, uh, a series of war crimes. 
So it's it's not um, it's not good, and and I imagine that this is potentially something that is animating not only for Democrats but also for people who look at this and have. As Mike was saying a few minutes ago, you know, any humanity at all, you just have to wonder about this. So, Lucy, let me start with you. The, the question I have is Democrats have had a difficulty bringing consensus on immigration, and Republicans have had even less consensus on immigration, uh, despite the fact that it seems to be, much like gun violence, an issue where the American people have much more of a, a monolith in terms of their opinion. So how do we move past this? I know you mentioned money and politics a few minutes ago, but it seems like there also has to be some policy avenues that just haven't been explored. And, and how do we get there? Yeah, I'd say for, for me that comes back to the issue of political courage. Um, I think there, the truth is that uh, Democrats have not been – great on immigration, right? Like, we're better than the other side, but that's, like, not saying a whole lot. Um, and <laughs> Better than concentration camps. Yeah, is that's not... our 2020 slogan. <laughs> it's good. I like it. I like it. It beats some of the ones that we've seen in the past. <laughs> um, but, like, we, we took back the House last year, right? And indivisible groups, grassroots groups were a big part of that. Um, and absolutely, healthcare was a key part of that winning message. But what I think a lot of folks are still on our side uncomfortable with is that immigration was a winning message for us too, right? Um, I think in the past it's sort of been like you're hearing horrible racist rhetoric from one side and then our side is like, let's not talk about it. And like, why should we be giving voters, that's not giving voters a reason to turn out for us, right? right. If all we're doing is like not saying horrible things. Um, and I think like the polling bears it out too, right? Like not to be a total DC hack, but like Polling shows Can't that, change who you are. <laughs> that voters are are actually, as as you were saying, there is compassion there, right? Like most folks believe that America is made better for having immigrants in our country. Most folks believe that the the atrocities being committed by the president at our border are horrifying. Um, and so I think when we're looking at uh, 2020 at at every level, right, like presidential, but also House and Senate. Um, Folks who are really centering people-first immigration policies, like Julian Castro or uh, Senator Warren put out a plan that um, followed on a lot of what Secretary Castro had already put out. I think that's the way to move forward on this. And folks can start right now, right? Because we did elect that House. Uh, and now we can do things to stop these atrocities happening. We can actually – there's a big budget fight coming up in September, and we can actually reduce funding for ICE and CBP uh, and – Democrats should be grounded in the fact that voters put them in office to do that. They don't have to be scared of immigration. They can actually take action on immigration and win people over. So it's moral and it's strategic. It's a win-win. It's funny to me because I think about how many people who are sitting where I'm sitting, which is not here in Local 16, but uh, in, a, in a pundit's chair, we're thinking, oh, the president's choosing to have the debate be on immigration. That was the last push. Six weeks before the election, we're going to talk about the caravan nonstop. We're going to make this issue be the and, – and people who were doing the, the role that I am were kind of salivating over the idea that the president, who knew that his voters cared the, as, so much about this, was willing to put the battle on that turf. And then they lost by – 
catastrophic numbers for Republicans. So I look at what you were just saying, and I think this seems not only strategically positive, but also something, you know, both of you have talked about it in different ways. You've said bold stance and political courage. Mike, you've said the same. I mean, th th these are the same things we're talking about. But let me ask you the same question I posed to Lucy, Mike, which is when we talk about this, it has to be not just about what's politically popular, but also trying to find political pol policy solutions, I should say, uh, that thread the needle in a new way. Or am I wrong on that? What, what do you think? I mean, you've obviously worked, you're chief of staff for a member of the House. You've, you've probably sat in more and more important meetings than I will ever have known about on this, on this topic. So what, what am I missing? I, I, don't, I don't think you're missing anything on this. I think that, um, you know, I think both of you are, are, are right. I think that um, the, you know, like Lucy said, the, the 2018 elections were the biggest demonstration um, that that a running on lies and xenophobia and racism when it came to particularly Latino immigrants is is not a like a winning message, and it and it is um, I, w I was I wasn't gonna say surprising to me, but like I, I, it should be surprising that the president would double down on it after having gotten his ass beat so bad in the elections in 2018, right? But now he's like, but it's to his core, he believes in these things. So that's why he, it's like, you know, he's going back to what he's used to. So you're, you're congratulating the president on being consistent in... Well, yeah, at least, he, at least he's consistent in his, like, hate. It's like um, Dr. Claw or something like that. But... Um, <laughs> But um, by the way, ever that 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 <laughs> reference dates you, I think, to, to within a month. I know how old you are now. Like that is, that is perfect. I know exactly. 